You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept doing this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. With me today, I have Austin Cantola. He is the founder of Genesis 3D Printing, and he built a business around helping the everyday outdoorsmen with all kinds of 3D printed accessories to make your life easier. So with that, Austin, how are you, man? I'm not doing too bad, man. Could be worse. Could be worse, (laughs) yeah. Could be worse. Hunting season's right around the corner. Lots of excitement coming up. Uh, When does your season open up for you? Um, In Michigan, it opens up October 1st. Um, But I do have an out-of-state elk and mule deer hunt coming up next week, actually. So, oh, shoot. I leave on a Thursday, which I think is the 9th, maybe. Oh. Now i got to look at it. Yeah. Where are you headed, Montana? Uh, Colorado. Um, Drew a muzzleloader tag for elk and mule deer. So excited to go for that. It's the 8th through the 17th is what we'll be driving out there and driving back. Cool. <clears throat> Me and my brother are going to Montana on the 15th, exactly one okay. week after you. Just nice. archery elk don't have any mule deer tags. So we're excited for nice. that. So before we get too far along, I saw recently on your Instagram, you posted your 10,000th order. Which is insane mm-hmm. for anyone thinking about starting their own business in the outdoor space to, to think about 10,000 orders have gone out the door. How did that feel when you realized you were that far along? Um, it was kind of like shell-shocking, I would say, because I wasn't really thinking about it. Because I don't, I don't really look at that stuff. Um, I handle more of the design product development stuff and maintaining printers that we have for our products. Um, my wife and I were just sitting outside one night, we're just hanging out and talking and she's like, Hey, do you want to do something for a giveaway? Cause we just hit 10,000 orders. And I was like, Oh yeah, we can do something. <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, it's unreal. And to think like we started in 2020 and we have done that many since then. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Oh yeah. Because that's not even, is that two and a half full years? Yeah. Just about two and a half full years. Wow, that's insane. That means you're doing like 3,000 orders a year? Yeah. Almost. And it's been, if you look at like a growth standpoint for businesses, usually you start out kind of like slow. Right. Um, so that's like small orders here, and then it just ramped up, and then it really ramped up the last, I would say this year and last year definitely ramped up, so significantly more. And we're still a small business. It's still my wife and I. It's not like we've t- hired on people for staffing. Wow. That's insane. So how did you get into the outdoors? I would assume probably grew up in it, but share with share with the listeners your your history in the outdoors and then how that led into starting Genesis. Yeah, so uh history from the outdoors was I grew up in a family. My dad uh was one of five boys that were living on a farm. And so in the spring they would go steelhead fishing and in the fall they would go chasing after whitetails. That's basically what it was. Um, my father uh, grew up in it. All four of his brothers were just heavily into it. We have 
property that we hunt on up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. We call it the UP, um, and we they used to go up there all the time and go for rifle season. Um, and our hunting or gun season is a little bit different. It starts on the 15th of November and then runs to that weekend of like Thanksgiving. So it's a pretty long one. Sometimes and most of the time the guys would go up there and they'd stay up there till the end of the rifle season unless they they harvested their their deer and they were able to come home early. But so that's kind of, I mean, I was kind of already in, it was in my blood, basically, is the best way to say it. Um, and so it was kind of like one of those things, like, you're either going to do it or you're going to do it kind of thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's no choice. So that kind of spurred the interest, I would say, into being in the outdoors. And it's it's just peaceful to be out in God's creation and just kind of be able to sit still and just take it all in kind of thing. Oh, for sure. And Michigan has some of the strongest deer hunting traditions. Um, you think about like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and even in the Northeast, you guys have some very strong traditions of going to deer camp, same place mm-hmm. every year with the same group of people. It's really cool to see. Yeah, for sure. Ours growing up was more, you know, we have a very strong tradition around it, but it was a, like, it was a one week with the weekend on both ends. And then a lot of people worked the week, right? And it's just your family farm. It's out back or it's a half hour away. So you would just hunt the weekends. Maybe if you got off work a little early, sometimes Mm -hmm. you'd hunt after work. But nowhere near like going up to the UP for two full weeks. And you're not going back out of the woods unless you have your deer. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. It it was kind of cool because I remember hearing stories like my, when you're in school, like your parents could take you out of school anytime, like, there really isn't much to go that's going on when you're a kid, and so like hear my dad tell stories of like my my uncles would just say, "Hey, can I take some of your boys up to the hunting camp and take them out hunting?" And whereas my grandpa would have to stay back and work or something, they would have free reign to just go up there and just do whatever they wanted, kind of thing. It was it was always cool. Awesome. So did you you mentioned going west already are you mm-hmm. the first in your family to really start venturing out west hunting how did you get into the the western states because i know that's a big hurdle of learning how to get tags yeah. where to go all that stuff so, you know um with my dad being so big in the outdoors he actually went to colorado for like six or seven years straight when we were kids and so we're going literally right back to where he went um he found a guy out there who has a little ranch um and he does fight camps um, so he'll set up a camp on federal land and then you just, he'll horseback you out there on horseback and mules and then you just start hunting. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those things like I didn't really have to do a ton of research cause my dad already knows it all. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been blessed with that, but there is a big learning curve. Like I have cousins that are going out this week to go out in the same unit that we're going to, but they're not going through the same person. So they're DIYing everything. And so they've had a huge steep learning curve but they're doing it because they get they said like we got to try it or else we're never going to do it yeah and it, it can be kind of daunting to to think about hiring you know whether it's semi-guided or a spike camp service you know it's not free and if you're already like man i don't you know i've never done this before i had all this gear i needed to get this year you know going diy maybe your first couple times is a is a good entry into the mm-hmm. western states because it can add up i mean it there's I mean, as much money as you want to spend, there's a guide out there charging it. Yeah, so. and it, it's it's one of those things, like, I feel like a lot of people are nervous about, like, the unknown. And for me, I was like, I started talking to people about it, and I was like, I don't have this, I don't have that. 
and like I can go spend the money, but obviously I want to try to be as frugal as possible. But when I started talking to people, they were all like, oh, I have that. Why don't you just take mine? And it was like, we were going for a muzzleloader hunt, and I don't own a muzzleloader. And I had like eight people offer me their muzzleloader. I was like, I think I just need one, so I, I think I'll be fine. But Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So you said you started Genesis about two and a half years ago. Did mm-hmm. you Were you doing something before that, or was that straight out of, of school? Um, so uh, business-wise, I, work for a comp- I still work for a company called Gentex Corporation. Um, I'm a process engineer there, um, and, and that's what I've always been doing since out of uh, college, and I continue to do it. It's a great company. Um, can't say anything that I would change it because they, they take care of us. Um, but for Genesis stuff, I started 3d printing stuff for myself for my saddle hunting setup because it's just expensive. And I was kind of cheap coming out of college and we're trying to do the Dave Ramsey stuff. And so bought a 3d printer again, um, and just started 3d printing little things. I was like, Oh, this will help me. And I started sharing it on social media and people were like, Oh, I want that. I want to buy that. So that's kind of how it kind of came to fruition. I would say. So you just hit your 10,000th order and you maintain a full-time job besides? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a struggle but um the the thing that people don't see is I'm the face of Genesis but my wife stays home and she does this full-time. Um Okay. She works ridiculous amount of hours trying to keep up with everybody. Um and she does an awesome job with it. She's she used to own a a small business where she made headbands. She sewed headbands together for women. It was called Oso oh, oh, Priceless. She still has it, um, but this year she decided to kind of scale back on that because of the G3D stuff going on. Um, so she's like the unsung hero. She fulfills orders. She takes parts off the printer, starts parts back up, cleans parts. Um, she kind of does all like the, the organization and tidiness, and then also the administ- basically the administrative work too. So. Okay, does so, a lot more work than I do. Yeah, it's really cool when you hear people, you know, husbands and wives tag teaming the business and, mm-hmm. and growing it together. It's really cool to see that. I'm sure it's probably brought you guys closer together, working on something that you both have like a shared mission and a shared vision for. Absolutely. You know, it's been it's been really cool to can, just connect with her on a different level. It's one of those things like you never thought of working with your significant other. And then you're like, well, we own a business, so we're going to have to work with each other. Yeah. Um, but it's been it's been awesome. Uh, we both have been gifted different strengths and weaknesses, and we kind of it's it's amazing to see how God has complemented each one of us to kind of fill in the gaps where I struggle, where she succeeds really, unless she does an awesome job with those things. Like I don't really like order fulfillment. Like I feel like it's tedious and time consuming. I'd rather work on creative, designing new products and testing new things, whereas that's something she loves doing is fulfilling orders and stuff. Awesome. Well, that's a great combination to have because you have quite a bit of both going on. From what I see, you have, you must walk through the woods and when you encounter something, you're like, oh, I could fix that with my printer. And then there's a new <laughs> design. Cause I looked at the website and you guys got all kinds of stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a necessary evil for the business. Like I, I can't stop thinking about new things that I'm working on. I'm like, oh, I could do this or I could do that. And it, it's like I could do everything, but you have to kind of weigh, like, would I use this? And if I'm going to use it, maybe I can do it because I'm selfish and I'll print something for myself. Or you look at it like, 
are there other people out there that would buy this or struggle with this that could need a solution? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a saddle hunter yet, so some of your saddle hunting accessories um, I didn't see. But, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't see myself using just because I don't have a saddle. And, it, I mean, it, saddle hunting is like you either need it or you don't, right? It's A lot mm-hmm. of the stuff is not really transferable to tree stand hunting. But what I was looking at was your your bow hoist bracket. Yeah. Because yep. I've had that problem. I used to use, like, a pill bottle and just stuff paracord in it with a loop. But then it gets all knotted. And then you have to dump the whole thing out. So then when you're going up the tree, the wind blows your rope into your ladder and it starts to get hung up and all kinds of issues with, with that. And so I was like, oh, hey, that's awesome. You just automatically unwinds itself as you climb. And then you have a nice bracket to wrap it around at the end of your hunt or when you're done using it and put it back in your pack so it's not going to be a tangled mess the next time you need it. Yeah. Yeah, there, it's, it's interesting because, like, that product came to life because a guy texted me a picture of his kid's kite handle. And he was like, hey, can you make me one of these because I'm stealing this from my kid right now and I'd like to give it back to him. And it was a good friend in Michigan. And I was like, sure, that looks pretty easy to do. And I was like, you're actually, like, the fourth person that's asked me to do this and I just haven't done it because... I just don't really work on things sometimes when it's not beneficial to me. And then I was like, cause it was for one sticking. It was for pulling your rope down after you're done one sticking. Oh. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I can do that, but I'm not really into one sticking as much as I used to be. Um, and then I thought about, it, I was like, no, this could be a gear hoist too. And I was like, you could clip a carabiner into this and then just let it swivel back and forth and unwind. So yeah, that's, that was one of those products that, kind of came to life and I was like wow this works really well actually yeah it looks like it's phenomenal I'll probably need to pick one up before the hunting season gets gets started here but for those of us that are traditional tree stand hunters you're gonna have to explain the term one sticking I think I know it but I'm not (laughs) super confident and I'm sure a lot of other people are like what is he talking about sitting three feet high off the ground no so one sticking is you climb with one stick and as you climb once you get up once you get on top of your stick, you would hang from your tether or your rappel rope and reach down, grab your stick, and then rehang it above you. And then you would climb up that stick again, and you just keep moving that stick as high as you want to go. So it's you're not limited by the amount of sticks you carry in. Um, you're limited by how much rope you have or how high you want to actually go. So it's a, it's a little – there's a lot of work that goes into it, but people that have figured it out really like it. And so – I, I kind of cater to whoever wants to buy some products from us based on the, the their climbing system that they're using. Yeah, it's a popular system for public land hunters that are going in. You're going deep, you're running and gunning, you don't know which tree you're going to be in yet, and you don't want to carry around four or five sticks with you. Um, I hunt a lot of private land, so my sticks have been in my tree since last fall. So, yep. you know, that's the difference yeah. we're talking about here. I um, mm-hmm, 100%. I met Ernie from Tethered, the one of the co-founders of Tethered, and he won sticks, but he has, I think he said a seven-foot um, soft-sided ladder on the that okay. clips onto the stick. So he has one stick, and then he has maybe six feet of like cargo net. That's probably not the correct term for it, but some type of ladder system that's that's yep. soft. And then he takes that off and puts it on his next stick. So he he basically stands on top of his stick. And puts his second one as high up as he can reach, and then he just does two sticks with that system, and he and he puts the net on the next stick up. But similar concept, you're trying to be a minimalist essentially when you're going into the woods. 
Correct. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great way to hunt. I'm very interested in it, but like everything else, like we talked about it, it takes a little bit of an investment and a learning curve, and, and I'm mm-hmm. a little bit gun-shy. Plus, I hunt so much private anyway that all my stands are pretty much set already. So Yeah, and, and hunting season is like almost a month away for most people, or less than a month. <laughs> yeah, I have zero time. Um, I'm, I have one weekend to get some stuff done at the farm, and then we're going elk hunting in Montana, and then I have a business trip. And then it's already, I'll already be two weeks into archery season by that point. Yeah. Not it's, probably it's the crazy. best time to learn how to use a saddle. Eh, yeah, probably not. Maybe, maybe wait till next year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So did you own a 3D printer already? And then you ran into a couple issues and you're like, hey, I could just fix this with my own 3D printer. Or did you, did yeah. you kind of start everything from scratch? Yeah, so when I was in college, I actually owned a 3D printer. That was one of the first ones they ever came out with. Um, made a bunch of trinket stuff to put on desks for ornaments and stuff. Nothing, like, functional. Um, but then when I, like, we got married, my wife and I, we moved into this house, and we started paying our debt off as fast as we could. I decided to buy a 3D printer because I was trying to make an income off of selling other stuff that I could print with it for random people that I knew. Um, and then I, this printer just kind of sat idle and I was like, you know what, I could use that for X, Y, and Z. And then I just started printing them. Um, and that was in 2019, I bought that printer and then started printing some stuff. And then in the fall came and I was like, man, I want to get, I got to figure out how to saddle hunt and I don't want to go buy a rope man. So I'm going to make a, a Prusik tender. Um, so I, that was like the first thing I printed and it was just kind of, off from there i mean once i've got one now i have 13 of them so yeah so did you along with starting that you must have been fairly confident with some type of cad software or 3d design software yeah i i would say there's so many out there um what i use like i use one at my day job all the time Um, i'm comfortable with that but i also use for the business i use a, a cad software that's called fusion 360 it's a free software for people to use. If you use it for business, you have to pay, I think, like 450 bucks or 500 bucks a year, which isn't bad um, for a full CAD software. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I went to college for it, so it's second nature for me. Um, there's a few extra things here and there that I do sometimes that guys probably wouldn't feel comfortable with it if they didn't go to college, um, just doing some FEA analysis and uh, understanding the materials that you're using and stuff like that. But other than that, it's pretty simple yeah that was another thing i was going to ask you about so anybody can get a 3d printer or go on thingiverse and and find something neat to print i've done it myself but you're not only just printing desktop decorations you're printing things that people are hanging from so how did you how do you go about the calculations and making sure you got enough plastic and the materials are sound and all that stuff yeah so there's a lot of design iterations when i design stuff um like I use specific materials that are rated for outdoor use first off is the biggest thing. So like the first material that I use is ABS. Um, ABS is what you'd see in vehicles. A lot of like chairs are made out of ABS. I'm actually sitting in one that probably has ABS all over it. Um, Legos are made out of ABS um, and it's, it's, it's very robust for what we would use outdoors. Um, I use an ASA is a very similar to ABS, but it has a little bit more UV resistance in it. Um, but then the last one is PETG, which is literally this water bottle is made out of PETG. So like your Nalgene bottles. Um, so just choosing the material is the biggest thing is making sure you choose the right material. And then 
um, from a strength standpoint is just understanding by looking at your design and you can run some stress analysis um, to understand where your weak point is and then how weak it will it be based on the force you're applying to it. Um, it's probably the biggest thing. It's, it's when you do it in CAD, it's not always like perfect depending on how you set the part up and knowing like I'm going to fix it here, put a force here kind of thing. Um, but you can get an idea, okay, if I had this weak spot here, what can I do to improve the strength of it and distribute the, the stress over this area, larger area. So it's a lot of jargon. I'm, it's a lot of engineering stuff, but that's kind of what goes into it. Um, and there, there's always some failures that you, you don't expect, like printers are a big thing, like there's variation in how well it prints a, a product. And sometimes you can't catch it or control it with the amount of orders that we have now. There are a few more parts that break from time to time. And most of the time they're snapping parts. They're not like, I over design the hanging parts so they don't break. It's more of like, okay, we have a snap that has to travel and it, you don't, you can't really predict the snap and how well it's going to open up and then close all the time. Um, so that's, that's inherent to the d design process when using 3d printing, but it opens the door. Um, when you choose 3d printing versus injection molding, I can print anything. I don't, I'm not tied to a specific design. When I do extra injection to mo uh, injection molding, that's the only design I can injection mold and that's it. So it's tricky. Yeah. I'm, I'm an electrical engineer by day. And so a lot of the okay. things you're talking about are second nature to me too, but I know we have a wide audience and not everyone might know that FEA stands for like failure effects and analysis and, and things like that. So I wanted to mm -hmm. just hear your, hear your thoughts on that. Um, but yeah, it, it looks, it looks like you definitely have put tons of time and effort into making sure they're as robust as possible. Obviously anyone that's stepped on a Lego um, probably understands those things are indestructible, <laughs> so they feel pretty good about the plastic <clears throat> they're using. Yeah. But like with anything, there is a little risk. Something could change. Something could go wrong. Is that part of the decision for forming an LLC when you started the business? Oh, one hundred percent. We don't we don't have any products that are that you're hanging your life from. Like you don't have. We don't sell steps. We don't sell. I can't even think of it. Like we don't sell platforms, sticks, stuff like that. And maybe we will get there eventually, but um, right now we're we're comfortable in the accessory department and just focusing on that because there's so much out there that we can we can market towards guys. Like there's already enough companies making sticks and platforms and tree stands. Like we don't need to dabble in all that stuff. There's already people making and steel products. Like all that life, you're li hanging your life on those things. Like we'll we'll stick with what we're doing for now um but yeah there there is a there's a slight risk so forming an llc to separate our our personal stuff from our business is a big thing um and we this year just started uh we're an s corp now so a small corporation so that's another level of like separating our personal stuff from our business stuff so oh heck yeah man making big moves that's awesome to hear and like you said it, there's a lot of things out there but that there's also a lot of things you could iterate and you could crank out and by using 3d printing you can do that after work or you can get some demos out instantly um mm -hmm. not only does tooling cost a lot of money you know that we deal with every day in my day job and, and maybe that's an insight for others is you know if you're going to do injection molding stuff it's a ton of money just to pay for tooling to be made yep. but it also takes a lot of time i mean especially i can't imagine that lead times you would have for maybe if you wanted to do 
injection molding, even for the like the tenders that you're you're making, it might be three mm-hmm. months before you get tooling done. <clears throat> well, you just blew past the whole hunting season. You just wasted a whole you know basically year at that point because you're probably not selling a lot of hunting accessories in February. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's like you want to be fast. You want to be agile, and, and by doing the 3D printing, obviously, you can do that. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's it's kind of interesting because we're shifting away from more. We're doing more non-3D printed parts. Um, <clears throat> so, like, doing, like, CNC routing parts or water jet cutting, and they, that timing is pretty quick, but it's still so much slower than 3D printing because we control our timing on the 3D printing side of things. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So a part of the some of the questions I wanted to ask you especially is, you know, you, you've obviously been doing it for a while and you found a couple things that work in order to hit 10,000 orders. Have you found any types of brand growth or marketing and promotion that seems to work better than others? Um, because I, like when I started Bull Elk Beard Oil, you know, you're trying all kinds of things and, and typically what you find is they don't work as good as you were hoping for, right? You make a post or you make some content and you're really hopeful and maybe you get a couple orders, but you're, it's, it's hard to find consistent traction when you're starting to build something, but clearly you have, I mean, you've, yeah. you've been doing great. So what, what are your <clears throat> thoughts on that? Um, I would like to preface it as I'm faking it till I make it kind of thing. Um, let's just start with that. Um, <clears throat> I think the biggest thing is understanding what people want. Um, you, people at the end of the day, obviously they buy with their eyes. That's part of it. But you also have to understand like supply and demand. Um, are you able to meet the demand for like a product that people are looking for? So be very, like for me, I designed various accessories for tons of different companies, products. If I, if I was smart, I would look at, okay, what products do I sell a ton of and what company is that product? being used by kind of thing. So for example, tethered, they sell a ton of stuff. And wouldn't you know, I sell a bunch of tether accessories for their sticks, for their platforms, for whatever. Um, So it'd be very foolish of me to say, I'm going to go design something for like a Lone Wolf Custom Gear who sells stuff, but they don't sell as much as tethered, to be honest with you, based on my sales. Um, So it's like, okay, let's focus more on the tethered products design features for that stuff or accessories for that versus the other stuff. So I think from a branding standpoint, there's, yeah, there's posts and stuff, knowing the timing of when to post things and how to post them. My wife's way better at that. So she coaches me up on it. Um, but for me, from a design perspective, it's knowing what the customers want or have to meet their needs. Um, I think th- like from a branding standpoint, we started getting more into like reels and TikToks, um, which I was just, I mean, they're not, I mean, it's not like they're rocket science. You just create a video and put an auto- audio in there that's trending and people were like, oh yeah, they start seeing it because algorithms. Um, so that would probably be the biggest thing. I think we've learned the past year is like focusing more on that side of things because I think people would rather scroll and watch something rather than scroll and look for a, a captivating picture. Um, and it changes and whatnot. So, um, and each social media platform is different. Like for Facebook, I focus more on sharing my posts for my business in select groups that are saddle hunting groups or mobile hunting groups that are going to target specific people that might want that product. Um, so that's kind of how my business started is I was starting to post it in those groups and it took off. 
Instagram, it's more like the reels and whatnot. Like you could make a post, but the likelihood that somebody's going to see that post is maybe high, low, depending on when you post it and how much interaction you get. So, um, yeah, I would say the reels or video stuff from TikTok and Instagram and then for Facebook, sharing it in the groups is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I've been using a lot of reels and TikTok as well. TikTok's probably my biggest platform because it just seems like you get to new people easier on TikTok and yep. reels versus Instagram feed and <clears throat> Facebook. It's typically people that are already following you, which is great. I mean, you obviously want to cater to the people that are following you. But it's hard to grow past that because it seems like you need the shares or for pages to pick up your posts and repost to really yeah. get that growth. Whereas TikTok, the whole the platform is based on showing you things you don't follow. Correct. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. My brother, he does uh, videotography for his life. Like, that's his business. He, has a, he, he lives in Chicago and he does that. And for like the past year, he's been telling us, you need to get on TikTok. You need to start doing some TikTok. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that, but sure. Like who hunts and uses TikTok? And it's like, we started using it. It's like a lot of people use it. And I'm like, wow, I don't even use TikTok. What am I missing out on? So yeah, that was, that was an interesting thing. And then also like the one thing I didn't mention is YouTube. Um, I forget what the percentage of male to uh, female ratio that use for users that use YouTube. And like the male was like, I think it was like 80% or something crazy like that. Yeah. You, you have a more targeted audience on YouTube and that's, that's been pretty good. It's not been crazy, super productive from like getting sales in, but it still reaches people because guys are constantly just watching YouTube videos while their wife is watching TV. It seems like, I don't know. Yeah. If I were to guess the, like the human population based <clears throat> on my social medias, I would say everything is 80% guys. Just out there in the world, it's 80% guys, because that's on every one of my platforms, it's like seven-eighths are guys and one-eighth are, are gals. And so, yeah. obviously, there's like a lot of gals out there that do hunt and fish, but it's more men. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So, are you doing, on YouTube, are you doing, like, like tip videos, like, this is how you use it, or this is how you do it type stuff, like short, like, content? Are you doing long format hunts and um, I'm not doing hunts. I'm more, it's like how to use this product or um, how to assemble it or how to put it on your tree stand or whatever. Um, have two videos is basically what I'm doing. And then I don't do any re review videos or hunt. I think I have one hunt video on there because when I started the channel, I started it without being a business. Okay. <laughs> and I recorded my cousin hunting with me in Missouri because I already filled my tag and I was like, I'll go hunt with you and I'll just film you. And he ended up shooting a solid eight point. Uh, that came into a decoy and I filmed the whole thing and his reaction. That was, that was literally the only hunt we have on the channel, but okay. I don't know. So <laughs> still fun. Still fun to do. Yeah, I've been doing some YouTube fun. shorts, but I started a channel fresh for this. So I didn't have any following. And so I think I need to make more of an intentional effort if I want to build a YouTube platform rather than just posting, reposting basically shorts from TikTok to YouTube mm -hmm. shorts. So, yeah. Yeah. We, we haven't done shorts on YouTube. We got to we got to start doing it because I think that's just where people are trending to from a social media perspective is those short reels and TikToks. Yeah, it just looks like YouTube's version of TikTok or Instagram reels. So, yep. Yeah. So building the the business maybe more of at a logistic level. 
give us a couple of tips. So on website, which platform did you choose to, to build your website to, to handle your order management? Uh, we chose Shopify. Um, and it's been pretty good. Um, there was a few things that were like, man, I wish we would have have we wish, I wish we had something for this or that and they've they've come through and released some updates for stuff like that like shipping manifest is a big thing um, so when you ship a ton of orders your post office will start to hate you if you don't have a, a one piece of paper that has one barcode on it um, they'll actually say they won't take packages we had that happen where they said we won't take these packages um, unless you have a shipping manifest and so we we basically said we don't have one but we can get one next time so then they took them but um, that was a big thing for Shopify, but now they have a solution for that. Um, it's a good platform, really good. Um, there's a little bit less customization you can do on your end. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about Wix is another good one. We haven't really looked into that. Um, and we probably won't change our, we won't change from Shopify cause we're, we're comfortable with it now. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I think that's probably, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing we, from Shopify perspective is. It's pretty user-friendly for people that don't have a lot of programming background. Yeah, Shopify was the first website I built for Bullock Beard Oil, and now I have a Squarespace site for the podcast. And I comparing the two, I, I see what you mean. Squarespace has a lot more customization, and you can add endless pages, whereas Shopify really isn't geared towards creating non-product pages, like About Us mm -hmm. pages or you know, hear our story or just a random blog post. It's, it's really centered on product pages and collection pages, but for that, it's amazing. And for order fulfillment, yeah. tracking analytics, I would, if anyone wants to sell or ship physical products, I would definitely recommend they check out Shopify and, and probably go with Shopify because it, it's really good. And then that segued right into my next question. So you're ordering a lot of, you're having a lot of orders that have to go out the door any lessons learned on when you start scaling up into, you know, you guys must be doing a dozen orders, a couple dozen orders a day at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it fluctuates with, uh, with, like, what time of year it is. Like, right now, hunting season. Yeah. So guys are ordering like crazy, and there's constant messages coming in. Um, but, yeah, I think the biggest thing for us is having an inventory and acting out of inventory is the biggest thing because there's nothing more frustrating when somebody – when you place an order and you have to sit for weeks to get that order because they don't have it in inventory and you just sold the product to somebody that doesn't exist and now they're like when is this coming when is this coming and you're like it's coming but i don't have a good time frame because i don't know when it's going to be in inventory so that was the biggest shift and that happened the first year we were doing this is i started doing this by myself and my wife was like hey you seem really stressed out like how are you doing and i was like I am like a hundred and some odd orders behind and I don't, I don't know when I'm going to get them done. And she was like, what? Like she had no clue, like how much it blew up in the first year. Cause she was doing her business. I was doing my business. Um, and we we're just kind of doing our things. And so she called uh, an emergency, shut down the site for a week and let's catch back up and then act out of inventory. That's basically what happened. So that would probably be the biggest thing. Once you start scaling up, really start shifting to a, an inventory and selling out of inventory and that'll save you a ton of headaches and customer responses. Yeah. I've always shipped out of inventory for bull elk beard oil and it might've been a small inventory. I think I launched with 15 bottles of each of my three cents and I sold out and that was fine. I, you know, I shut the website down and said, thank you. We'll be back in a month. And then it, you know, it was in the middle of COVID. So shipping delays and out of stock 
on my supplier side was really frustrating. But, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, if, if I would have left the website open, it would have taken people two, three months to get their next bottle. And I, that's just not something I wanted to do. I didn't want to manage those questions and, you know, fair questions. Hey, when's my order going to show up? I don't want to tell him the same thing four times in a row because it took a month <laughs> to get to get his order out. And so, yeah, yeah I definitely can see that. And it's, it depends on what your product is. It's a little bit easier to act out of inventory when you control the inventory like you do or I mix my own beard oils. If you order stuff, if you have, a, if you have manufacturers, you're on their timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's, it's hard, too, because, like, sometimes, like, guys have to take orders to make money to buy the product to make it. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, you look at some of the companies that are doing that, um, they're buying, like, $300 worth of material to make a product that costs, like, five to $600. So to say I'm going to buy 100 of those, like, your cost just went way up. And it's like, man, it would have been nice to have some capital to pay for that before I did that order just to make sure I know I'm going to sell these things. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, s- switching topics a little bit. Did you, are you in a small town post office? Okay. Yep. So that's sure. kind of why yep. they just didn't have the overhead to handle the amount of orders you were bringing in. Yeah. I think they literally had one or two people that work in the office. Okay. <laughs> Cause I've always had bigger post offices and even to the size where they put one of their big mail carts, like, I don't know what it is, a 200 gallon cart on wheels and they just put it out and say pre-ship or pre-labeled shipments and you just i go in and i just put all my beard oil boxes in this big cart and there's hundreds of orders and i think there's a lot of people doing their own businesses these days because you'll see like similar packaging you'll see 10 orders of the same type of bag or the same type of box and so it it seems like it kind of depends might be something to think about if you live in a small town America to figure out which post office makes the most sense to use if you're going to be dropping off a couple dozen orders every day. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I've went to three different post offices and they're all the same, and they're all they're all smaller town. They're not like a Chicago or Grand Rapids or Detroit or something like that. Right. So. But, you juggling mm-hmm. your orders around so neither one, none of them get sick of you. Uh, no, we take it to our our local one oh. and. There's only there's only one person that works there that's usually pretty not okay with it. Even if it's literally us just handing them a piece of paper, they're still like they're not happy about it. The other two are just happy as all get out because I don't know maybe they enjoy their job more. <laughs> yeah, you're always gonna find those people that like nothing's gonna make them happy. You could do everything to make their job easier, and they're still unhappy with you. Yeah, for sure. So, have you guys started looking at any type of? of formal advertising to grow the business or is everything you do organic, um, different Facebook groups and all of your socials? What's the breakdown there? Yeah, everything has been organic. Um, the only thing that has not been organic is when we started advertising for our event that happened two weeks ago. No. Yeah. Not this last weekend, but the weekend before that we literally just advertised. So people were aware of it. Um, okay. cause we wanted to make sure, we were reaching people so they could come to the event and just have a face-to-face contact kind of thing. Um, but other than that, it's been, yeah, I don't know if we've ever paid for advertisement. <laughs> That's awesome. So. That's incredible. To, to Organic growth is what everyone dreams of, and, and very few find a way to achieve it. So it, that's awesome. What kind of event did yeah. you have? Uh, we called it, well, it started, we started it last year. We called it the Saddle Tune-Up Event. Um, this year we changed it to the mobile hunter tune-up event because 
we had some people that are tree stand guys are like, hey, what about me? And I'm like, well, yeah, you're invited too. Like, don't feel like you can't come. Um, but yeah, it was just an event we put on. We had this year we had a few more vendors. Um, like some of the bigger vendors that we had were like Latitude Outdoors. Um, we had H2 Saddles there, and then Beast Gear was there, and then we had Lou from Stealth Strips there, um, and Sam the Amsteel guy, and then we had Gearhead Archery. Um, Skip from Gearhead was there. Um, and then Zinger's Fletchings uh, were also there. So, um, yeah, it was just an event where we had a bunch of vendors come in and they could sell product, have people test their product out, and then also we had a huge giveaway. I don't know how much we gave away, like money, what it was worth, but it was anywhere between six to $9,000 worth of just mobile wow. hunting gear that we gave away. It was just, And that was just me reaching out to companies that I knew in the industry based on just interacting with them and said, hey, you want to donate anything like great opportunity for you to showcase your product people can take the giveaways off the table and go test them on a test stand and then put it back on the giveaway um so that was really cool because guys got to sit in like nine different saddles if they wanted to and test them all out and be like okay i like this one i hope i win it but if i don't i'm going to go buy this one yeah um so yeah it was giveaways vendors and then we had some uh demonstrations that we put on um so like how to saddle hunt like Saddle hunting 101, and then tree stand hunting 101, mobile hunting with a tree stand. And then, like, one was, like, uh, how to choose the right saddle. And then we had uh, different aiders that you can use to climb with to reduce the amount of sticks you take in the woods. And then Sam, the Amsteel guy, put on a, like, a, a climbing stick attachment method, like, other than a cam buckle strap. So he walked through, like, rope mods, daisy chains, and then his USA and then other stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot of demos and then we had, we provided lunch. So that was another thing. They didn't have to pay for it if they want they want to. And yeah, it was a fun event. That sounds like a heck of an event. I'm, I'm almost bummed. I missed it. I, I assume it takes place in Michigan. It does. West Michigan, man. It's, it's beautiful though. You can make the drive up. There's a big lake in the way, but I did. Uh, I was in Zealand earlier this year for, um, for work. That's where I work. You work at Inatech? <laughs> No, literally that Inatech's right down the road from us, though. How was that Inatech? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah, I did a whole lap around the lake on the way there. I went around the north side, and then on the way back, I went around the south side. So I'm in the Twin Cities. So yep, went around gotcha. Lake Michigan. Yeah, that's next awesome. year you'll have to come to the event, man. I think we had just about just over 200. I think was what we got to come. Wow, that's awesome. So yeah. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Have you decided, have you done any trade shows as a part of this journey, like ATA uh -huh. or smaller regional trade shows? We were going to this year. Um, we missed the deadline for signing up for one because we got so busy last year during the hunting season. We were just worn out. Yeah. We forgot all about it, and we were just like, we can't even do it anyway. So, like, we wanted to, but it was like, eh, we just won't have time to do it, even, even though we missed the cutoff. Um, but yeah, this next year we're going to, we're going to try to do at least one. Um, there's a lot of guys that ask us, Hey, can you go to this one? There's the Iowa deer classic one. And then the, uh, what is it? The great, great outdoors one in PA. That's like a week or two long. Um, yep. we've been asked about those. Um, uh, but we'll probably just do some smaller shows just to get our feet wet. Yeah. Um, and try to stay local because it, it takes a lot of time and effort and, with me having a day job, trying to find the time to take off for those events is a little challenging, especially when I want to use them to go like on hunting trips. Or if my wife is like, Hey, 
I want to go with you on a vacation, which I love, but at the same time, it's like I got to make sure I'm juggling my time off appropriately. So, Yeah, time is a big question about this style of, of life, right? When you decide to start something, it takes a lot of time to build. Are you doing this with the dream of one day this is your full-time job and then you can be more flexible with your time? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's everybody's dream when they do something like a small business kind of perspective is like they want to grow enough where they can sustain their income through their business. And that's, that's the goal. Um, right now, like we're doing, we're doing okay. I mean, I feel like we're doing okay, but at the same time, it's like my wife is able to stay home all day um, and work on the things that we need to do for our business. And I'm able to stay focused on my, my stuff that's at hand at, for my day job and not feel overwhelmed with the stuff to an extent that's happening at home. Um, but it, it's, it's really important for us, like what we found is establishing rhythms of knowing like, okay, this is what we're going to do during this time block or this day. So like Mondays, I have a golf league at our church. So Mondays aren't a work night, but Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, those are work nights and we're going to be done at this time. And so when it's this time, we're done working and then we're going to, we're going to spend time together if we're not already spending time together kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's future wise. Yes. We want to, do this full-time both of us but at the same time right now we have a system or rhythm that works well for us yeah it's a it's take it's a big leap i mean it's one thing to build a profitable company and but it's another thing to build it so it's profitable enough to replace your income and live off of because a lot of people mm -hmm. take those profits and reinvest they reinvest into growth advertising branding expansion but that's not food or rent or mortgage payments and, and you know so it's it's another big step to, to go to that level. Yeah, it is 100%. So if when you when you started this, was it just kind of one person asked for the same thing you did for yourself and then another person asked and then you're like, oh, this might be a business or were you always kind of have that itch to start some type of your own business in the outdoor industry growing up as a hunter? Oh, I, I never had the itch, to be honest with you, if I'm being realistic. Like, I had no inkling that or thought that I would be making stuff for hunters or out in the just being part of the outdoor industry, which is awesome that I am now. But when I started making stuff, it was because I was making stuff for myself. I was very selfish. Um, but then I was like, okay, I, I'm making this. People are liking it. They want to buy it because it's a, it's a common problem that needs a solution. And then I was like, okay, what's another common problem? And I was like, everybody needs a bow hanger. Okay, what, what's out there for bow hangers? And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go this way, this way, this way. And, like, let's focus on a public land one, one that works with every strap or every attachment method and all that stuff. And it's compactable and lightweight and all this stuff. So it it's just kind of morphed into, like, I had this problem and I want to solve it. And then I was like, okay, what other problems are out there that I can solve? I kind of always go back to what kind of problems do I have and what do I want solved, um, which is which is good and bad. Hopefully other people have the same problem that I have, but sometimes it isn't that way. Yeah, that's the same way I started Bullock Beard Oil. I had a beard. I had a beard that got dry and itchy and uncomfortable, and I bought a couple beard oils and then decided, hey, this wouldn't be that bad to build my own and dabble with, and people started liking it. I started handing out samples to friends and buddies, and, and they were digging it, so... That's how the, the business started. I was trying to solve a problem for myself and turned it into a side hustle. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's awesome. So 
Is there? Do you have anything on the horizon with with Genesis 3D that you're looking at? Um, plans to expand or different types of product segments to get into? Anything like that that you're kind of thinking about out in the future? Um, nothing crazy um, from a product standpoint. Um, nothing that's earth shattering. Like, wow, I can't wait for this launch. Like, we already did that. We launched a camera arm this year um, that we're pretty excited about and pretty. Um, I don't know. feel like it hits a lot of things that aren't currently out there. Um, but from a growth standpoint, I think it's just learning the different ins and outs of the industry from a manufacturing standpoint. Um, so we're 3D printing stuff, but how can we also make these things and not have so much time or money wrapped up into them and get a very more crisp, robust system that's whether that's laser cutting, water jet cutting, machining, whatever you name it, that's kind of what we're looking for right now. Different 3D printing technologies and stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's jump back to that camera arm for a second. I almost forgot about it, but (laughs) it's not just a camera arm. It's a camera arm that meets a very specific um, solution to problems that I would say almost everyone that hunts has is that I don't have a camera. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your camera arm. Yeah, so... The uh, camera arm is a camera arm that's, I don't even know where to start with it. Well, let's start with the fact that it weighs 14 ounces um, and has a total reach away from the tree at just under 21 inches. It's like 21 and three quarters of an inch. Um, so you get a full length. It's all uh, 6061 T6 uh, aluminum, black anodized. Um, the tubing that we use is square tubing, but it's really uh, small, low profile, and then we have some reinforcement spacers in there to help kind of keep the tubing strong um, and keep it sturdy. Um, there's a lot of thought that went into this one. We uh, we started with a design that's very common. Like a lot, you see a lot of people making a design that use a cam buckle strap and then a screw tensioning knob, like the pocket arm from the little custom gear. I started designing something that was similar to that, and then one of the guys that's on my field staff was like, "Hey man, why don't you make something that's different, different than everybody else? Like everybody's already doing that." Like. You, you want to be rooted in innovation. Why don't you try to be a little in, more innovative with us? I'm being very direct with it. He wasn't, like, rude about it like that. He yeah. didn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. Um, so then I came up with a different method. I was like, well, if we're not going to use tensioning through a screw knob, why don't we use an OCB buckle and get our leveling adjustment through a slot design and just use two basically threaded rod, a re- threaded rod with a uh, knob on it and just pinch that tubing in there so you get your up-down adjustments and then your left-right adjustments by changing the base. But it's a one-piece design. There's a lot of people that have two-piece designs, and there's some people that have one-piece designs. The downside about a one-piece design is it usually isn't as packable because you have a very large piece that's hanging straight out and then one that has to mount to a tree. With this one, it folds up into its base, um, so you're, for one, it's all compact into one system, but it's also like everything streamlined in one direction. Yeah. Um, so it packs down to nothing, um, and it bites hard because of the teeth that's on the base, and then it has the OCB buckle. Um, but, yeah, it's designed for guys who are saddle hunters that use a cell phone. Um, you can use a cell phone with it, and I even link on the listing on our site different cell phone mounts that we would recommend through Amazon or not through Amazon, and then fluid heads, like really, really small, lightweight fluid heads. Um, I think... All in all, when you buy the 
the iron that we sell. We sell it for 150 bucks, and it's all machined in West Michigan, and dyes machined everything in West Michigan. Um, and then the the fluid head and stuff we link on there. I think at the end of the day, it's just under 200 bucks for everything to get cell filming with a solid setup. And you're using the phone that you'll carry in the woods with you. Yep. And today's phones these days are the cameras are almost better than the cameras that you would go buy anyway, like a handy cam or anything like that. So it's like, why would you waste the money when you already have a better camera in your pocket that you're going to take out there all the time? So, yeah, I think for what the average guy wants to do is document his hunt. You know, that I think most hunters aren't trying to build the next outdoor TV hit series. They just want to film stuff and be like, oh, hey, cool, look at this video from last night in the tree stand. And they already have the phone. I used to yeah. self-film all my hunts. I had a fourth arrow camera arm, which for anyone listening, I mean, a $200 system doesn't even scratch the surface when you start to talk about a three-piece um, camera arm that can support a full HD camera plus the base and the straps. It's heavy. I think it was like 10 pound system um, Mm -hmm. between like a huge base that self levels and then the, like a three part arm. So that's expensive. But then the cameras, like they're very expensive, thousands of dollars by the time you get some type of fluid head, the camera, a mic with a windscreen, you have your, um, your control, I don't know what they call the control, but you want to have a control knob so you can zoom and focus and turn it on and turn it off with your left hand or your right hand, depending on which way you shoot. I mean, you're making a huge investment to self-film. This mm-hmm. style, what you've built, you already have 80 to 90% of what you need to self-film in your pocket. And all you need is, you know, this adapter, a fluid head, and a, and a, and a, and a arm, and you're off to the races. Yeah. Make sure you pick a quality camera holder so you don't drop your cell phone out of your tree stand. But yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a it was a cool product when we started working on it, and just to see it come to life is it's been cool, and the feedback has been really awesome for it. And there's a few different changes. I wouldn't say changes, additions that we're gonna make to it to allow people like some people were like, I want three arms, and I was like, oh, okay, well we can try to figure out a design solution so you have three arms for like tree stand guys. Because the reach isn't as like filming out of saddle is really easy compared to tree stand hunting. Like mm-hmm. it's pretty difficult to sell film out of a tree stand, but out of a saddle, shoot, it's relatively easy because you already have your face in the tree. You can rotate around the tree. When you film behind you, you can just move around and get a, get it so the camera's pointing behind you now, and you're just out of the way of the camera. With a tree stand, you're kind of kind of locked on there. So we have a few few ideas that we're working for tree stand guys, and then just different accessories because that's what we do is we make accessories for stuff. Yeah. Plus I like with the cell phone, it's a wide enough angle that your average guy is going to be able to get the shot on camera. Like for my favorite stand, I bet if I put my cell phone horizontally, I could film in one angle, 75% of my possible shots. So it's like, if I think he's going to be anywhere between here and there, I can just put my cell phone right in the middle and I'll get it on film. Mm-hmm. When the guys start using telephoto zoom lenses or, or DSLRs or, or HD cameras, you zoom in to get the sh- like that perfect outdoor TV, real close shot, and then they take mm-hmm. six steps, and now you're screwed. You know, now you got to yeah. come off of full draw, move your camera. He's probably seen you by this point. The jig is up. It's a recipe for disaster, really. <laughs> it is, and most most phones film in 4K, so yeah. if you need to crop and zoom in, you can a you lot. You still get the quality. Yeah, I think the 
the latest Samsung has a 10x zoom lens, optical zoom, and then 10 more digital, and you can actually read text at that. You know, I was at Best Buy and I zoomed in across the entire store, and I could read the the sticker on their air duct on the ceiling, like wow. across the store with that camera. It's insane. So yeah, like you said, plenty of power in today's modern cell phones to to film. And you, you don't need to zoom in that far anyway, unless you have a no. like a, a TV contract. <laughs> no. Yeah. it's For me, it's like I have two hunts that I filmed, and I actually harvested a deer on those two filming hunts. I didn't catch the shot on film, but like seeing the video back and watching the deer come in and watching them fall, I was like, man, this is, this is awesome for what I want. I just want to relive the moment. That's yeah. all I want. Maybe post it on your social media or something and share it with buddies. Mm-hmm. yeah awesome yeah it's a very cool product i was excited to see that i gave up filming a long time ago because i got so frustrated with trying <laughs> to get everything to work but maybe if i switched back to a saddle i'd might get into it again because like you said when you sit on a tree stand you have to extend the arm past you and then be in front of you with enough range of motion to film and then it's always in your way like it's yeah. always in your bow's way it's always in your way when you saddle hunt you flip around so now you're out past the tree looking back at the tree so then you can just keep it real nice and tight Yep. Yep. Exactly. So cool. 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 Well, give folks a chance to, to follow you on Instagram and check out the site. Give us all your, your locations where they can find you and where they can check out all the great accessories that you guys make. Yeah. So like I said, we're on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Genesis 3d printing and then TikTok. I'm assuming it's Genesis 3d printing, but I, I don't spend much time on there if I'm being a hundred percent honest. Um, then we have a YouTube channel, it's Genesis 3D Printing, and then uh, our Facebook, or sorry, not Facebook, our website is just Genesis3DPrinting.com. So you can go go there and check out all the, I think we have over 30 different products now that we sell, so go check them all out. Awesome. And are you doing apparel as well, or just products at the moment? We are, yep. We have a few logo gear on there. Uh, I like our hats probably the most. Um, there's, there's a lot going on with that, and I, I really enjoy that stuff too. Yeah, did you... Do you do the hats yourself? Do you have a local person, or do you do drop shipping? Um, we found a place. I think they're out of Illinois. It's a, a husband and wife, um, Shea Butler Knife. Um, they uh, are called Single Acre Hat Co. Um, they have two different businesses, and we just started working with them, and they've been awesome. They've been super fast and reasonably priced for a small business, and we like kind of trying to support other small businesses and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you found that. You know, as hard and complex as some people might think creating new products is, you probably think that's second nature. But when you go to apparel, it's a whole dark hole of, of you know, what blank and what shirt and what lat hat and what logo and how big and do I go leather patch or embroidered and who's going to make it? I don't have time to make it. All this stuff. It's a huge, it's a whole nother huge rabbit hole to, to drop into. So it sounds like you found a, a better way to do it. Just go find someone that already knows what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, I did apparel briefly. I did I did a public land fundraiser the year we launched in September for Public Lands Month, and I was going to sell these shirts and donate all the proceeds to 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 land access. So buying contributing to a project to buy a parcel to unlock the land lock behind it, and a mm. terrible idea on my part to to decide I'm going to start doing my own heat press shirts and peeling and cutting vinyl. I bought a vinyl cutter because I wanted it anyway for my apparel. But but to do all that, it's a lot of work. I didn't understand how much time it would be like, oh, I made one shirt in five minutes. Like, oh, it's easy. Well, I started getting orders in, 
and then I was going on elk hunts. I had a, a Montana elk hunt or a Colorado elk hunt, mule deer hunts, and then all these orders are coming in, and now I'm dealing with all these supply chain issues. And it took me like six weeks to fill all these shirt orders. I was like, never again am I going to do this huge <laughs> type of apparel fundraiser in the middle of hunting season. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. Well, I thanks for having you here, Austin. I appreciate you sharing your story. I mean, you've done an incredible job. It appears to build a business. You said fake it till you make it, but unless you're putting in 10,000 of your own orders, there's no fake in that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's true. That's very true. So I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you grow and, and definitely want to pick up one of those uh, bow hanger brackets from you. Awesome. awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, folks. Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>